Thank you, Todd, for those kind words, and good evening, everybody. It's a thrill to be here. We are here as peers. Don't think we've arrived. Don't think we have all the answers. We struggle probably with many of the same things that you do. So we're just giving you a progress report, how God has taken us to where we were, to where we are. Who knows where he'll take us from here? Uh, any of you could come up and give your story, but uh, we were the lucky ones tonight. Is that how it goes, Todd? So the way we're going to go, I'm going to talk for a few minutes, then Leslie's going to come up and talk for a few, and then I'll come up and uh, wrap up our time. So I know you said no investment ideas, uh, Todd, but, but I have two. I'm in the investment management business, so I can't help myself. How can you double your money? Take out your billfold and fold it over. You got it? Some of you got it. Second investment idea, how do you make a million dollars in the stock market? You start with two million. <laughs> you know money? Everybody knows money will not make you happy. But somehow everybody wants to find out for themselves. You got that too. As most of you probably know, it's estimated that Jesus spent about 15% of the red-letter words in your red-letter Bible talking about money and possessions, more than heaven and hell combined. Did you know that? What's that about? It means it's about the heart. He knows that's where we're at. Billy Graham said if you can see somebody's checkbook and calendar, you really can get to know a person. They're humbling words. Stewardship, generosity, is not a subcategory of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. And while we're going to talk mostly in our few minutes about money, it's about time, talent, friendships, kids, the whole gamut. And the way we're going to do it, I'm going to speak to seven vignettes in life, seven things in our journey about halfway through, Leslie's going to come up and amplify on a couple of them. I'll come back and wrap it up. So the first, my first introduction to generosity was when I had my first job. It was to serve a daily newspaper in junior high and high school. I made a couple of bucks on it, and my parents instructed me that I was to give 10% of what I earned to the church, 80% save because you're going to need it for college, and the 10% that was left was for, you know, a Coke or a milkshake every month or two. Yeah, that's about how much. You know, I developed a habit. I don't think there was any joy in those days in giving. But, you know, habits can be really good things, and the joy did follow. Of course, I'm almost embarrassed in this crowd to say we gave a tithe. For most of us in this room, and a tithe is a total embarrassment, is it not? Double tithe, half your income. We know people, you may be in the crowd, who give 90% of their income away. A tithe is the Old Testament starting line. I'll move on because I'll preach a sermon soon. That was a vignette one. That's where I learned a bit about giving. Number two. We all know in the Sermon on the Mount, 
Jesus says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. And as Randy Alcorn says, it's not because it's not, a, it's just plain stupid, Randy says. I'm sure you've seen that in his books. But the sermon goes on to say, but do store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And I hope you're about that very thing. How does that apply to us? We were so busy doing our thing, me climbing the corporate ladder, Leslie bringing up the kids, that we didn't really spend a whole lot of time. We, we gave our tithe. We didn't have a conspicuous consumption problem. We had an inconspicuous savings problem. We were building barns of money. God prospers us, I believe, not to raise our standard of living, but to raise our standard of giving. And that was the first lesson that we had to say, you know, giving a tithe is just so short when your income is at, is at a certain level. Vignette number three, <clears throat> be open to God, the Holy Spirit. This has happened to us in different ways, but the one that's most glaring, I was just sharing with Matt at the table, we were invited to a fundraiser. And uh, we knew about the cause a bit, and uh, we were intentionally going to give to this particular cause. And when we got to the fundraiser, it was the host of the house, people at our church, and the president of the organization, and us. Yeah, just us. We figured there'd be, you know, 15, 20, 20, who knows how many people. Leslie and I found after, out afterwards that we both had a number in mind that we we're going to give to this organization. And for us, it was a pretty big number. And we went through the evening, talked about the mission and what they were up to, and the president of the organization challenged us with a number. No, it was not that number. It was the number we had in mind with a zero after it. Ooh. As I said, it was a big number, so this number now is really big. You know, we walked out of that dinner, shared with each other the number we had in mind, and turned out it was the same number, and we both looked at each other and said, you know, this was a Saturday evening. If God the Holy Spirit doesn't put something in front of us between now and Monday evening, 48 hours later, we're to be obedient and give that larger amount. And we did. We haven't always done that. Don't think we're, uh, you know, some super saints when it comes to giving. But that in case we did. And did God bless us? Our connections, our ministry, our understanding of his kingdom on this planet just grew exponentially as a result of that act of obedience. You know, David Platt in his book Radical says, I doubt there's a moment when we get to heaven where God's going to come around and say, Hey, Susie, why didn't you keep more for yourself? You got that? Let the blessing of God come your way by being radical at times. Number four, and then I'm going to turn this over to Leslie. We've learned over the years, writing checks is great, but giving a life is better. Yes, we write checks, but you know, our heart tends to follow our money, and our money tends to follow our heart. If you can work those things together what a beautiful blessing. Let's come and share that and a few other things. Well, it really is a, a joy to be here with you all um, tonight and during this weekend and share a little bit of our story. Bob and I, as a married couple, are on this journey together, but I'm sure, and it's the same for all of you, for many of you, I'm sure, um, we actually experience the journey very differently. 
Growing up in Dallas, I always dreamed and planned on a career in international business and made my way to New York City to work on Wall Street after graduate school. With an MBA, a passion for the world, and a keen sense of adventure, I was just beginning this career dream when Bob and I met on a blind date in New York, got married a year later, and Emily was born soon after. These career dreams were put on hold as I chose to quit my job and raise our family. I believe God wanted me to be home to raise our children. However, that didn't make it an easy decision. In fact, sometimes it felt like a huge sacrifice. But as I fast forward a few years, you'll see how God redeemed this decision of obedience with great purpose and blessing. During those years of hard work, busy lives, raising a family, and Bob's relentless but increasingly successful job on Wall Street, we were creating a level of wealth that I certainly could never have imagined. We began to realize, though, that our stewardship of the growing resources God had entrusted to us was not nearly as successful. As believers, we were faithful givers. However, it was not well thought out, definitely not strategic, and was not connected to any real heart passion for God's kingdom. We were overwhelmed, in denial, and basically ignored this accumulating wealth, parking it in the bank for a lot of years. The upside of, what, of this was that our lifestyle didn't really change, and no one, not even our children, knew of our wealth. The downside was that our, in our hearts and in our heads, we wanted to be faithful givers and stewards of God's gifts, but we were busy. We didn't have any tools to sort this out with, and um, we didn't have any peers to counsel with. This caused a level of restlessness, anxiety, dissatisfaction, and increasing emptiness when it came to year-end giving. In fact, honestly, for me, it felt like a burden. There was no joy, and I felt that my value to the kingdom had been reduced to a checkbook. But a number of years ago, God began to do something really big. He began to challenge me very directly in this area of stewardship, and he used a number of events along the way to remind me that he didn't just want my money. He wanted me. He wanted all of me, my time, my talent, and my treasure. He began to challenge me very directly about not only where we were giving our money, but how we were giving and living our lives for the kingdom. He challenged me to take a risk for him, to get involved, and to join his heartbeat of love for the lost. He was telling me in no uncertain terms, like he did with Peter, if you want to walk on water, you have to get out of the boat. John Ortberg's book of the same title continues to inspire and convict me. You see, I was sitting safely at home, writing checks to fund good ministry work, but God was calling me to something better. He was calling me to come, to trust him, to trust him and get out of the boat, to trust him and get out of the boat and walk with him in the storm and on the water. I was really challenged by this. I was challenged to take a risk for him. I was challenged to engage with my giving, to get involved and see what God would do to see that the blessings that I had been given as an opportunity to glorify God and join in his kingdom work here on earth. These challenges were a very clear call to join my life in God's work of building and bringing his kingdom in a consequential and game-changing way. And he took me to the Middle East and broke my heart for those lost in the lies of, lies of Islam. What I'm doing now in the Middle East is simply a response to God's stewardship call on my life. And it's been such a joy to discover that the dream I had a long time ago 
to go into international business is now being fulfilled with love and purpose by God, who is engaging me and calling me into his divine international business. Since the onslaught of ISIS in 2014, as partners in Strategic Resource Group, SRG, Bob and I have done a deep dive with pastors, churches, and indigenous ministries in Iraq, Lebanon, and Turkey, partnering in some pretty intense refugee relief efforts. I've been spending a fair amount of time there in the region the past few years, particularly in Iraq and Lebanon, in the trenches with our partners, bearing witness, assessing the work, and verifying the impact and the outcomes of these efforts. I've gotten pretty used to wearing body armor, shooting AK-47s, giving cigarette bribes in order to pass through armed checkpoints, and watching Apache helicopters drop bombs. But what I haven't gotten used to is sitting with the 15-year-old Yazidi girls who just escaped their ISIS owners after three years of captivity as sex slaves and crying with them because their sisters and mothers are still missing, haunted by the memories of ISIS beheading their fathers. Or the tears of the priests whose churches were turned into bomb-making factories, weapons arsenals, slave markets, and then torched with chemical explosives. Or the pleading faces of thousands of people who have almost lost hope that anyone in the world even knows or cares about them. And yet, in all of these difficulties, I have seen the unimaginable hope and joy alongside the pain in sharing time and tears together. We were in Iraq last year following up with a camp of Yazidi refugees who were helping through a local Iraqi pastor. Yazidis are neither Christian nor Muslim. Their religion predates Christianity with Zoroastrian roots and has taken on elements of many religions. The Yazidis are particularly hated and persecuted by ISIS. To date, thousands have been murdered, and about now, 3,000 women and girls still remain in captivity as sex slaves of ISIS. We were in this Yazidi camp, and we went into a small tent where two young girls were displaying some simple watercolor paintings that they'd painted, and they would tape them to the tent wall. The majority of the paintings depicted women and children in some sort of prison cell, arms and legs chained tightly, tears streaming down from their faces, with a bearded ISIS man dressed in black standing over them with a gun or a knife. These girls are traumatized. The refuge and rescue, forgiveness and restoration they need cannot be delivered in the back of a pickup truck. True healing can only be delivered through the word of God, the resurrection and the life, the balm and Gilead. SRG is blessed to join with the American Bible Society to equip the church in the region to minister his holy word of healing through their Bible-based trauma healing program. And you know, being in that tent that with the precious Yazidi girls and their pain and the paintings, I was overwhelmed at the potential to reach thousands for Christ while leading them right, leading them right into the loving arms of Jesus who loves them and is able. I was in Mosul in 2017 during the final days of the battle against ISIS. We visited a church that ISIS had completely bombed out and shattered, going so far as to paint the ISIS flag on the front of the church and blast the marble pieces with sledgehammers. The church was devastated. It was as though by destroying every symbol of Christianity and destroying the lives of every Christian possible, ISIS believed that Christ could be defeated. I remember that day wearing body armor and watching and hearing Apache helicopters dropping bombs of death over Mosul and really trying to find the hope in it all. And then, in looking way up into the cupola of the dome of that church, it was virtually unreachable. 
I saw the painting, the, a painting of the beautiful face of Jesus that was untouched. This painting had overcome the destructive evil of Isis and was a reminder that despite what we see around us, Jesus is above all things. He is alive. What a great hope we have. Having been to dozens of refugee camps and heard more stories than my heart can bear, I'm more convicted than ever of the urgency of the gospel. The opportunity is now. And the opportunity is great, but so are the challenges. God has put each one of us in this room on the front line of his work here in the U.S. and all around the world. I've been on the front line, and the front line is a tough place. While in Iraq, I was with one of our ministry partners, and we went to a project we were supporting ministering to Kurdish Peshmerga soldiers, freedom fighters, serving on the front line of defense against ISIS. At a distance of just one kilometer from ISIS, I had a small taste, a small, small taste of what these soldiers experienced every day, a courageous passion for their cause, which is the defense of their people and their land, but also the reality of the cost of acting on this passion, their very lives. The front line is a tough place, the place Jesus has called his body to serve. Success will require showing up and kneeling down, going lower as he is lifted higher. I love what Ann Voskamp has written. This bleeding, broken planet will taste healing not because more of us tried to climb ladders to be seen, but more of us went lower and saw the face of Christ in those who are too often unseen. I count it a blessing and a privilege to have such a clear stewardship call and the resources that God has entrusted to Bob and me, but the bigger blessing is the clear stewardship call on my life to go and see and do, to be joined with our Lord in his heartbeat of love for those in the Middle East. I don't know about all of you, but Bob and I often struggle with the application of Jesus' words to the man in Mark chapter 10. He says to go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and then come and follow me. How do we do that faithfully? What does it look like? I think part of the key, at least for me, is actively pressing life upon life in the here and now where it's real, even if it's hard. I believe the following to be true. God will not look you over for medals degrees or diplomas, but for scars. I have medals and degrees and diplomas, but I wonder if I have enough scars. The battle for the hearts and souls of men is fierce and the victories are hard won. The faith and courage of the Christians in the Middle East is nothing short of miraculous given that they are surrounded on every side by the powers and principalities of this dark world. In considering their costly witness, I was confronted again with Mark Batterson's words from his book, All In. When did we start believing that God wants to send us to safe places to do easy things, that faithfulness is holding the fort, that playing it safe is safe, that there is any greater privilege than sacrifice, that radical is anything but normal? Jesus didn't die to keep us safe. He died to make us dangerous. God may not call me to suffer or die for my faith in him, but surely he's calling me to live it. He's calling all of us to live the lifeline of the cross of rescue, whatever the cost. He's calling each one of us to see with eyes of faith, to feel with God's heartbeat of love for the world, and to get out of the boat and walk on water. What extraordinary and exciting days to be alive.
Our time is up, so I'm going to be very brief to try to wrap this up. Number five, we've learned that it's not just giving your income, it's giving your wealth. We have a plan in place, I hope you do too, that your money expires when you do. Do not curse your kids with too much wealth, we've learned that. We don't want to give Uncle Sam a nickel, he has plenty of money already. It was a job loss that it took for us to see that. Make it fun. If you're going to give somebody $1,000, don't give them $1,000. Mail anonymously 10 envelopes with $100 each. Right? 10 consecutive days. What a difference that makes. And we've learned over the years, or we are learning, I guess is a better way to put it, is um, none of it's ours in the first place. So the question is not how much do we give. The question is how much do we keep. At least for us, that's transformed our consumption as well as our giving. What do we struggle with <clears throat> as I wrap it up? The answer is all of the above. That is to say, we're tempted all the time. It's mine, God, not yours. Can I work a little harder and make a little more so I can save a little more? Pride, look how much we gave. We struggle with all these things from time to time. Don't think you're alone. Seeking the praise of men, not the praise of God. Let me end with this. We are all going to die. Uh, for me, it'll be Tombstone, Bob Dahl, 1954- I hope some of your way in the future. We have no control of the first date, little control of the second date, but that hyphen in the middle, God has given that to us. So my question for all of us is, from a generosity standpoint, to people who have been given much, what are we doing with our hyphen? May God bless you all.